Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man, and Imam Kumar Ahmed. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. Long time no see. Yes, indeed. Uh, how are you? <laughs> Doing very well. Doing very well. Yes. Uh, enjoying, enjoying the brief, uh, I suppose, uh, summertime that we're having in August. Look, you can't enjoy the summertime if you've got hay fever. So that's oh, what true, it is. True. So do you suffer from... Suffer, uh, well, yeah. Suffer in the uh, winter, suffer in the summer. How can you suffer in the winter? There's no pollen, right? Yeah, but it's just like everything else apart from that. So, <laughs> so you're just suffering. <laughs> the, yeah. the, life, the, the life of a, an Ahmadiyya Muslim <laughs> imam Yes, to suffer though, isn't it? But it's all good. We get used to it. It's all good. It's all good. All right. Well, you're in the chair, the co-host chair today. Yep. What are the two? I mean, uh, during our two hours, we, we kind of like we discuss, dissect. Hmm. We have a guest on regarding these topics. What topics have we got on? this afternoon we're going to start with child poverty oh. obviously poverty in general is an issue affecting you know what it sounds like something that would be we told you we, we, we'd be talking about a less economically developed country but we're not now mm. this is something which is an international crisis mm. here at home everybody's feeling the effects of various financial difficulties and of course we're going to be talking about the policies that are potentially going to be put in place mm-hmm. which might affect the kinds of help that we receive for our children mm. and what can be done about that. Yeah. And then, of course, we're going to be sticking along the financial lines for yeah. our next topic. I mean, really, it's it's a recipe, if, if taken on board globally, which would ultimately end, I think, personally, end you know the financial crisis that we all see, whether it's gl- uh, domestic or global. Certainly a step in the di- right direction. Yeah. It's, uh, obviously, Islam is a package. And it presents many things. And one of the things that it does present, which we're going to be talking about, is zakat. How does this actually work as a sustainable mm-hmm. financial model? We're going to look at that. Is it realistic? Is it going to do what it says in the tin? We'll find out today. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Or what it says on the label. Yeah. But without further ado, let's jump into child poverty. Now, uh, we're going to look at, the, obviously, the critical <laughs> issue of child poverty uh, and see... The impact uh, of child poverty, not just uh, upon the child itself or themselves, uh, society in general and the families. So, you know, we're looking at the policies which will be coming into effect, whether it's the current incumbent uh, government or the, well, maybe kind of the next government in in terms of labor as well, because their intentions are to uh, take away the two-child benefit cap, uh, which currently was implemented uh, in April 2017 as part of the efforts to encourage employment among parents of larger families. Hmm. Um, I mean, what do you think about that? This is something which, on the one hand, we know that this child benefit scheme other schemes that help people exist mm-hmm. and you know what that is of course a very good thing that the government has done from the get go Yeah, and it's been around for a while whether it's for two people two kids one kid no kids they've done it for at least a certain amount of children and they've acknowledged that this is something that they need to do and they're supporting people mm-hmm. what may have been felt and this is where I might partly understand what those policies have been there for is that and of course this might not be representative of the current climate Mm-hmm. But in the past, what may have been felt is that people have become overly reliant on certain kinds of benefits. Mm-hmm. However, child benefit isn't a very large amount mm-hmm. compared mm-hmm. to some other benefits that can be received. Mm-hmm. So it's questionable, okay, what, what's really going on? Is this really going to make a huge difference mm-hmm. if we curb this? Is this going to 
is 70 quid or 80 quid going to really force people back into employment or is there more that needs to be done? Well, mm. we, they are the experts. They know kind of what exactly why they feel that way. Mm-hmm. But what the matter of the fact is this, is that while governments do help people, Yes, it's ultimately the responsibility of the breadwinner at home mm-hmm. to go out and make sure that their their family but, has I mean, food on the table. Yeah, but the thing is, Comer, right? I, I totally agree with you there. You know, we we want to be effective, whether you're a single parent family or in a, a you know normal family yeah. unit where there's two breadwinners, and we want to provide for our children, uh, provide for our families. Yeah, but. I mean, if you look at the impact of this, yeah. right? So, you know, when we uncover the real effects of the policy, it's on an estimated 1.5 million yeah, children this who is will be thing. impacted upon so, this, right? I mean, in in like kind of, if you look at it from a very superficial perspective, it looks like, oh, well, it's not that, it's not that bad. What's it mm. going to do? That's why I asked the question. What would 78 quid really make a difference on? Mm. And it sounds like, okay, maybe not that much, but actually, yeah. It would make a difference, especially, like I said, this isn't really representative of today's climate, the current policy, because we know at the moment how many millions of people are suffering from inflation mm-hmm. across the country mm-hmm. and price price hikes in pretty much everything mm-hmm. to the basics, which we saw over the past few years in fuel. Mm-hmm. Now we're seeing it in food. And for people that are living on low income and they've got children, it's not a sustainable way to live. Mm-hmm. So, of course, there is something that needs to be done about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading a statistic where and the only reason I was reading this and there was a minister uh, a couple of months ago who was complaining that they can't survive mm-hmm. on an 80,000 pounds a year income <laughs> and I was like okay, wow, okay. interesting <laughs> uh, in the report of that it's basically stated that there are people in the UK that will survive on way less than that mm. you know we're talking you about have to. on 70 to 80 pounds a week and yeah. perhaps two years ago three years ago you could have said you know what someone might just be about to do that mm-hmm Today, that's that's practically impossible, yeah, for, for practically my, for, impossible. especially for people that have families. Mm. So within today's economy, it's not sustainable to expect of people that, mm-hmm. where on one hand you have people that are complaining about such incomes which mm. surpass most of the people that Yeah, but in. I suppose it's, it's their reality, isn't it? It is. It's right? a lifestyle. It's their entirety. And then um, it's when you have incomes uh, in excess of 50 odd thousand yeah. a year then you think oh actually I am getting impacted because of uh, increased utility bills of increased course. fuel bills or I might be paying a mortgage yeah. yes I'm paying an extra couple of hundred yeah. a month right so yes you won't be able to if you're a minister have that uh, extra holiday in the Maldives oh, right precisely but on the other end of the spectrum where you're actually on minimum wage exactly then it is going to impact Every little so helps. much I mean, if we think about it in terms of charity, right? Mm. We've always been told, uh, even by uh, His Holiness, Mr. Muslim Ahmed, uh, may Allah strengthen his hand, the head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community, that, you know, when we give charity, mm. right? It's, and, and I think this is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but also the sunnah, the, the sayings of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings mm. be upon him, that when you give charity, when a poor person gives charity, put, gives one pound, Right of their you know of their hard earned money, it it bites them more than say someone who's wealthy exactly. and gives a thousand pounds because they don't see you know really is that a is that a big decrease in their mm. standard of le- uh, their standard of living? It isn't really. Yeah, absolutely right. It is. It really is about the sentiment of things. Mm. Um, I I think that but there has to be a balance, and this is where perhaps my my views are a bit different on this. But I think the way I look at it is that we have the example of Hazrat Umar radiallahu anh, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. He was a governor, but he wasn't always a governor. Before he became a caliph, he was not. Um, when he became a governor, he was so concerned 
about the financial state of his citizens that he would himself like literally he's a governor right mm-hmm. like he's equivalent to a modern day prime minister yeah. go out onto the roads at night with a cloak mm-hmm. so nobody recognizes him no security guards nothing like that just go from house to house as, as far as he could every single day in a different direction to see what is going on with mm-hmm. my civilians yeah. and he would come across families where there's no father for example mm-hmm. and they don't have an income at the moment the kids are, are hungry they're starving and the mother all she can really do is tell them that the thing she's cooking in her pot is food and they'll get it shortly where the reality is there's nothing in the, pot. Nothing in the pot and so what he does is he'll go back mm-hmm. and he'll go and get the wheat and the rice and the grain and he'll say look this is my mm-hmm. responsibility and when his servants say to him let me carry this sack of rice for you to the house. He will say, no, that's my responsibility. I'm mm-hmm. going to be asked by God about it. Mm-hmm. So there's that where he was so concerned. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we know about Hazrat Umar, mm-hmm. that when, when he was younger, people would ask him and he himself was asked, okay, I can't find a job. What mm-hmm. do I do? I need to find income. Hazrat Umar was never the person to say that, go and ask, mm-hmm. go, and, go and get benefits, even though that's a system in place. Mm-hmm. It was a system in place. The, the first thing he said is go and find income even if it's in the bushes. And mm-hmm. what he meant by that is that go and go and collect sticks in the in the in the in the in the forest mm-hmm. and come and sell them to people who might want to kindle them as fire. Yeah. And what he meant by that is that we must really utilize all of our options. Yeah, and use the the, the skills that were yeah. bestowed upon us. But we're we're moving a bit away. Let's go let's, let's let's go into the nuts and bolts of the two benefit or the two child benefit cap, the origins and its intentions. Now, the two child benefit cap was introduced back in April 2017 as part of the government's efforts to cut costs and reduce public spending. It aimed to limit the amount of fiscal support provided to families with more than two children. This policy specifically impacted child-related welfare benefits, including child tax credit, the universal credit, Hmm. which were now limited to cover only the first two children born after April uh, 2017. Now, the primary goal behind this cap was to incentivize parents with larger families to work more hours or find employment. Proponents believe that by reducing welfare benefits for these families... um, Parents would become more motivated to become financially self-sufficient, you know, find more jobs, (laughs) ways of making income, right? (laughs) Now, the government's intention was to strike a balance between providing the necessary support for those families who are in need and encouraging them to make greater responsibility for their financial well-being because, you know, at the end of the day, it's your family. Mm. Uh, And, you know, if we look at that, what, though, is... The outcome of that, I mean, the economic and social uh, impact of that. Uh, Policy makers, i.e. the government, expected that this cap uh, to have a positive impact uh, on the government's finances by reducing that overall spend on these families. Uh, And additionally, it was hoped that the policy would lead to an increase in the workforce participation by those parents uh, of larger families. Now, the government believed that more parents working would boost the economy and decrease uh, dependence on state benefits. With the cap uh, faced, uh, so the two benefit, or sorry, the two child benefit cap faced significant criticism and sparked debates regarding its potential implications. Because you can imagine, right, Connor, that, okay, We've instigated this, right? It's going to actually, and I being the government, right? Hmm. We've put in this policy is to incentivize. It's not just the case of like, okay, you could get child benefit for any number of children you had. So say if you had a 
uh, family of 10, hmm. right? You'd still be getting 10 lots of that child yeah. benefit. So at the cap of two, that means, right, even if you have you know more than two children, you're going to have to find a way and means of supplementing your income from that benefit or to that benefit, right? Absolutely. So, you know, what were the... I mean, did it work, really? Yeah. I mean, this is where the criticism and debate has been sparked. That most obviously it's going to affect low-income households. And this is where the policy really is going to matter. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not quite sure. Because here's the thing. The government obviously wants to, to cut spending. That's just the ultimate objective on most mm-hmm. of the, the curbs that are being put in place. I mean, if they had the cash, would they necessarily have done it in the first place? Um, we already know that the core intention, I, I'm, not sh- I'm not sure. Mm. So... Yeah, but I mean, look, cut, cutting spending, right? So just cut in there. This was instigated in 2017. Hmm. So this is ahead of the crisis that we see ourselves in yeah. the last, say, two years, I would right. say, right? So post-Brexit or post the two years after Brexit, which is 2019, when it got done, 2021, actually, that will be it. We've had two years of transition. Hmm. Then it properly kicks in. Now... Government doesn't really want to say that actually we are in the econo- well in the state of our finances as a country and trade as a country due to Brexit, right? Hmm. I've not heard that yet. Yeah, an official statement. There from is no any reasonable right? research to suggest either way at yeah. the moment. But here's the thing: I mean, I'm not an expert on the finances, but my question would be, and I think the question that would be reiterated by most and the most reasonable question would be: Why, if we're going to do something like this, why are we going to do it? at the expense of children. That's Mm -hmm. what I would question myself first and foremost, where we could have possibly made cuts elsewhere. And of course, they probably very well thought about it. Why did we choose to do it here? Because like we said, this particular benefit is basically allowing low-income families to survive. And it may be the case, it may well be the case that some of them could go and find employment. Mm-hmm. But where we have families which are already at their necks or families where they're single parenting or families where even if they have single parenting, they're having to, at the expense of finding another job, probably putting their kids into childcare, which again is probably paid for. Mm-hmm. It's probably paid for by the government to some degree. But we as in a government, I mean, even if it was an Islamic government, would should and would prioritize the fact that mm-hmm. a child's parents are at home rather than sending them to people who are not their parents. This is something which a Muslim family would also prioritize as well. Mm. The upbringing stays with the parents and that's primarily their responsibility as well alongside bringing in financial income. So yeah, at the one hand, you might encourage employment where at the other hand, we might it might come at the expense of raising our kids properly. Mm. This is I'm, what, what I mean, I um, in the words of uh, the, uh, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, uh, His Holiness, Ms. Mazur Ahmad, uh, may Allah strengthen his hand, he said regarding, you know, this... this this aspect of uh, society that we live in in the holy quran allah the almighty has repeatedly instructed true believers to fulfill the rights of mankind and to help those in need or who face difficulties of any kind the quran has particularly emphasized the need to help the most vulnerable members of society such as those who are mired in poverty Hmm. So, you know, there you have it in a nutshell, really. Right. Uh, the Islamic uh, response. I, th- I think, th- here's the thing. Um, has the, so the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has spoken a lot about how it is ultimately a man's responsibility to bring finances to the table and that they should not be, they should not be dependent on any other organization 
or any other family member. Mm-hmm. And this is important, where the, even the current caliph has said that the government will support you. Great. Mm. But if they don't support you, ultimately you need to be aware of that and responsible for this. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So let's just quickly, before our first guest, look at, uh, because we've, we've spoken about what the uh, two-child benefit cap was is all about in terms of what the government hoped it would would do it would do right so you know what's the real impact on families now uh, looking into it obviously financial strain uh, families with more yeah. than two children face significant financial pressure due to the cap with limited access to child related welfare benefits they struggle to meet the increased costs of additional uh, children such as uh, education, healthcare, and child care expenses. You know, you've already pointed that out. Um, exacerbating uh, child poverty, uh, which, contrary to its intended goal of increasing employment, the policy has unintentionally led to a rise in child poverty. Uh, families grappling with financial hardships uh, find it challenging to provide their children with essential needs, uh, thus perpetuating the cycle of poverty and limiting their chances for a better future. What other things that we got? Yeah, we've got, like I said, you've already mentioned kind of some of the obvious things like child poverty and uh, the issues that this would bring about. And I think while we have other issues like for example, in, in China, we had a long time ago, the one-child policy. And I was actually thinking, this is one of the first things that came to my mind, that while this is a financial cap, this isn't a cap on the amount of children that you can have, but it may make people think twice about how many children they might potentially want to have and in their family. So this is, again, something that subconsciously and definitely, definitively may have an impact further on our future generations. And we're talking about this, talking about financial caps and all of these things. And while it may seem justified in some ways to the government and to others. I think what's really important is is the essence. If, if their true intention really is to encourage people into employment, and if that is the case, and that really is what they're trying to achieve, very good. Like we want people to go into employment where needed. But for that to happen, just putting in a cap and not bringing in resources on in, importantly educating people on how to then do that, it's it's kind of like okay well it's a bit short term thinking isn't it so short short term thinking what I, what i feel like is that nowadays there are many different ways to earn an income mm-hmm. whether it's online whether it's through labor whether it's through business and the education is absolutely vital because what you cannot do is you can not deprive a family of funding mm-hmm. and not show them how to then recuperate that this is really important in my personal opinion that these courses need to be made available. This kind of awareness needs to be made. I, I think when when you get into a certain way of living, uh, to get out of it and then have to readapt can be very, very difficult. And it's not really your fault that you mm-hmm. didn't know. Exactly. So awareness is absolutely crucial. Right. So to speak more regarding this, we're joined by our first guest of the day, uh, Joseph Howes. Now, Joseph is the CEO of a charity called Buttle UK, a charity dedicated to helping children and young people in the UK who have experienced crisis, living in financial hardship and dealing with multiple challenging issues. He's also the chair of the End uh, Child Poverty Coalition, a group of over 100 charities, trade unions, faith groups who are campaigning for the end of child poverty in the UK. UK. Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, Joseph. Thanks for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Hello, Joseph. Are you there? Oh, hello. Hi, hello, Joseph. Yeah. We're just having a few kind of like gremlins in in the system today, but <laughs> yeah. we've got a hold of you. How are you doing? 
Yeah, good, thanks for having me. I was listening to uh, to you both speaking about it. Made some really, really good points. Mm. So, I mean, we're we're just we're just amateurs. We're going to go to the source now, yeah. which I hopefully <laughs> is you. So, first question out there: You know, can you tell us uh, about this mission uh, that you're on uh, and focus of Child Poverty UK, and specifically, yeah, you know, what are the aims to combat child poverty in this country? Um. Well, we believe in in the coalition, across the coalition, about 100 organisations that no child growing up in the UK should live in poverty. Um, and we ask uh, this government and all future governments as well to commit to ending child poverty. And uh, it, it's kind of in the backdrop, particularly at the moment, we all can campaign as a coalition. That's what we do. We try to unite behind a particular element around ending child poverty. And our campaign at the moment focuses on ending the two-child limit that you've both been discussing. Uh, mm-hmm. um, just to add as well, my role at Buttle UK, yeah, it's really relevant to this discussion in the sense of we, we provide um, items to children and young people uh, in poverty, and they're really basic, like essential items. So <laughs> things that you, we'd all just agree for children they absolutely need, like their own bed to sleep in, wow. um, mm. like carpet for their bedroom, clothes. Yeah, mm-hmm. things like that. So, really basic stuff. So, when you're talking about taking seventy pounds out of a family, yeah, yeah th- this is really, really kind of focusing on. Well, wait, when you haven't got a bed and you're taking seventy pounds out of a exactly. family, you, that's that's bringing it to life a bit. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. This is where I felt like. It doesn't sound like too much to a lot of people, but it really, really does make a huge yeah. impact. Yeah, it and just depends on where, which which yeah, well, end of the spectrum you are. If you're on the minimum wage limit and you've got you know so many dependents, then it is a huge kind of blow to your income. Yeah, absolutely is. Um, Joseph Iskomer here. First of all, thanks a lot for doing what you do. Yeah, uh, it's like really, really inspiring to to kind of hear. That there's people like you out there so that just thank you so much for that first of all but um obviously you must face challenges and you must have to find ways of trying to overcome them and i'm sure that you can probably walk us through some of your experiences and how you've managed to overcome them and kind of what kind of impact has that had and just inspire us a little bit more about that please yeah, I, look, I mean, first of all, in terms of the, the major challenges we have, I mean, just to put it in those in, in the figures, is, you know, we're looking at 4.2 million children in poverty in the UK right now, 29% okay. of children wow. across the UK, yeah? So, yeah, that, that's huge. I mean, in some areas, it's the majority of children, you know, there's um, areas like Hackney in London, the majority of children and families are in poverty. So that's, I think it's around 52%, so a majority of it. Wow. Um, so, that, you know, that is a background that we're, we're facing here anyway. Um, that has got definitely worse over the last um, four or five years, what with COVID and then now cost of living. And we're, we're finding way more families now that are facing destitution, where, you know, they, they have no um, constant means of feeding themselves essentially, mm-hmm. um, keeping heating going, roof over their yeah. heads, all of that. Yeah. And, and just, just to say through our work with Buttle, we work with so many families where they have been moved into new accommodation by the local authority, mm-hmm. and it is absolutely empty. Yeah, mm. there's, they may well have fled uh, domestic uh, violence, for example, mm. um, with their children and moved into a new place, there's literally a kind of one electric cooker stove mm. 
for them to cook on. And um, I mean, there's there's, no, there's nothing else in the whole. I mean, it's it's what what gets me, Joseph, is like the the, the scene you're describing. In my head, it, it just throws me back to some kind of Dickensian, Victorian yes. time work. You know, the the workhouses that used to populate around uh, this this country in Victorian times. I mean, you would have thought, you know, we're we're, we're centuries away from that now, but unfortunately, we're not. I mean. In, in in your opinion, I mean, what are the consequences, right, regarding the you know the government's introduction? Well, back in twenty seventeen, of this two child benefit policy, this cap, right? Uh, I, I mean, yeah. yeah, really, what are its? What do you think are its long term effects on society? Is it really fulfilling, um, like? Myself and Kumar, what we were saying was it, you know, is it actually fulfilling the goals of what the government wanted, you know, in their mission statement regarding this, i.e., to really um, encourage encourage uh, parents to, if they had bigger families, to go out and work to offset that, you know, the the lack of income that they're getting because there is that cap. I mean, is it really yeah. is it really doing that now? No, I mean the, the research has shown that that, mm. that that isn't happening. That hasn't that hasn't happened. Oh, actually, from what you were talking about before, what, what we can absolutely say is that the government have saved some money in the short term because they're not paying for this. It's about mm. one point three billion um, a year, yeah. and so that, that's a saving. Yeah, but what's the long term cost of that saving? That's the challenge. Yeah, it's mm. what, when you're pushing children into poverty. When you look at the figures here, you know it's. Uh, Research shows that by 2026-27, over 50% of children in families with more than two children are forecast to be in poverty. So, you know, we're, we're, that's because of this cap as well, because mm-hmm. it's pushing more, more children into poverty. It's actively doing so. That's what right. we are up in arms about. It's actively doing that. Yeah. It, it, was, it was obvious when it was put in, this was going to push more people into poverty. It's obvious now. It is. Mm-hmm. But, but Joseph, here's the thing, right? Um, I, I kind of understand that, you know, like even personally, I know that it makes a huge difference for people at home, uh, this extra bit of money. But the way um, Talib just put it as well, with the government expecting there to be some kind of incentive for people to go towards employment, it almost to me felt like, even though they may not be saying this, it, it felt like the government was saying that people just need to work harder and mm. people aren't doing what, good enough. They need to go and find a way, just just do it. <laughs> it yeah, but that makes me laugh because that's exactly what some of the uh, kind of like the Conservative Party, those who are yeah. governing currently, have just said. You know, well, you know, there is a cost of living crisis. Find a better job. Yeah, but that's what I mean. So, Joseph, the thing is, like, yeah, is it... I feel like that's such an oversimplified view. And, and is that the reality on the ground, that people are just not bothering to find jobs? Or, or is, it, is it something else? It's, 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 it's one of those opinions as well. that You just get so frustrated, so lazy and tired as well, mm. that, oh, that opinion of like, oh, just go out and work harder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the families we're working with are working uh, so hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, multiple jobs. Work's not paying particularly well. Um, and we, you know, we need to ensure that companies are pay- paying the living wage. So, look, where I'm getting at with this is, and you touched on it before the two of you, which is, well, they're, they're focusing. Why are they focusing this against children? Yeah, mm. why start that? Like unbelievable to do that. So, why actually not start with things like childcare, as you mentioned before? Like, we really need to push and support on there. The government done, have done a bit on that. Mm-hmm. What about things like the living wage or at least increasing towards the living wage, the minimum mm-hmm. wage? 
where you, people are working. I've got uh, uh, another stat for, for you, which is 59% of those affected, children affected, in these uh, by the two child limit, their parents are working. They're in working households. Right, okay. So one parent is working. So let's not get, get completely woven into yeah. the government's push on this, which is like each of you go and get more work, more work, more work. Let's make it easier for them to get work as well, because if you've actually got more than two children, then you need the childcare. Right, exactly. You need that support. Yeah. So, but, yeah. Um, but Joseph, what is it that... We're talking about obviously this cap here and, and child benefit in particular, and this is probably just like one element. And and we hope obviously that we yeah. can come to some kind of solution. But as individuals, as businesses and communities, and of course even the government, what kind of things do we need to do to make a proper difference to this? Yeah. I, I, so I, you know, I, I think uh, we should be up in you know. Uh, up in arms in a sense about how challenging this is for people out there and how harsh this policy particular is for children but just in terms of poverty and, and challenging your local mp on it that's really important you mm. can go directly to um, the end child poverty website look it up on google it's endchildpoverty.org.uk as well and you can write to your mp it, it took me 30 seconds to right. do this mm-hmm. so it's something really quick and simple that you can do <laughs> and they need to hear that you're, you're, you're feeling challenged about all of this anyway. Businesses, I've touched on it before, we really push for people to be paying the living um, living wage mm. uh, because that, that's, uh, that's, that, that's going to that point of people are working and money's not enough. Right. Um, and then communities, you know, schools are really big parts in communities and what we see at Buckle as well is we provide a lot of support for school uniforms, etc. Mm-hmm. We're still doing that even though there's... You know, schools that say they don't have particular branding on their items, it's really expensive. It so is, schools yeah. can still really step in and make a difference there too. And I know many are doing as much as possible. But I think as communities, we can really try and push on that too. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, yeah, there, there is a range. What I would say about the government is what we actively need from this government and any future government is across the board a strategy to end child poverty Mm. if you haven't got a strategy for something it's not going to happen and Mm. so you know in the last 20 years we've seen poverty get worse and worse and worse actually since around 2007 i think it's got worse worse and worse and actually the labor government before that did actively try to bring that number down and it did work so it's an active you know you're being active in the sense of going against child poverty if you're uh, if you're in government and you're not doing anything about those numbers Mm. It's a sorry state of affairs currently that we find ourselves. Well, Joseph, it's been a pleasure speaking to you this afternoon. Thank you very much for joining us on the Drive Time Show this afternoon. Have a good day. Thanks. Thanks for covering the issue too. Thank you very much. Thanks, mate. 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. We've also got some uh, socials regarding this. Uh, so we've asked on Insta Story, should the two-child benefit cap be lifted? It's a simple binary question, yes or no. So towards the end of the segment, we're going to be coming up with uh, what our survey said. Okay, cool. Yeah, our survey said. So uh, we're going to actually head straight to our next uh, guest of today, uh, Councillor Iram Woolley. Now, uh, Councillor Iram Woolley is a proud member of the Labour Party. She sits on the National Cooperative Women's uh, Steering Com- Committee and is also a, uh, has also campaigned for the 50-50 Parliament Initiative. She's also a school governor. 
Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, Councillor Willie. Thank you very much for joining us on the Drive Time Show. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm not actually a councillor. I was a council candidate and a oh. parliamentary candidate. So <laughs> I've assigned a, a higher status to you. I'll take that back. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Okay. But you are a proud member of the Labour Party, right? I am indeed. There yeah. you go. You see, so we, we got something right there. No, thanks very much for joining us on the Drive Time Show today to talk about this, this, this topic, right? It's a very serious topic, uh, child poverty. I mean... Uh, and we've we've kind of dissected uh, the two child benefit policy, uh, and you know it's a subject of debate because it's current government policy, and uh, you know maybe it will be policy, maybe it might be um, kind of taken away by the Labour government if, or sorry, by the Labour Party if they uh, win the next general election. Now, as to that. You know, what are your views on this policy and you know, do you believe it should be abolished? Uh, and if so, why? I, I actually recognise that the concerns surrounding the two child benefit policy as well. Mm-hmm. However, in the current economic climate, I think it's also essential to make difficult decisions right. to ensure the sustainability of our welfare system. Uh, the policy is designed to encourage responsible uh, that aligns with the broader goal of fiscal responsibility. So whilst I understand the concerns, I believe for now that that policy should remain in place. Mm. But we were just told by um, our previous guest, uh, Joseph Howes, who's uh, chairperson of uh, Buttle UK, that over, I mean, roughly 50%, I mean, there's an increase. Yep. Yeah, this policy that was in, uh, instigated when April 2017 is actually yeah. driving more families into poverty. So, you know, I mean, that's how, how, how many years? We're six years down the line, right? Um, so there's been that increase in child poverty. Wouldn't you say that that's a bit of a kind of a pointer that the policy isn't working as to what the government wanted to? I think there are uh, many factors, multiple factors, that we need to look to a holistic approach on uh, the conditions and the environment that surrounds this. Mm-hmm. You will also be aware that Sadiq Khan has introduced and will be implementing in September of the school year term for primary school children, free school meals, mm-hmm. right right across the board. Uh, children are being given uh, food vouchers in the holidays that can't, uh, are, are really struggling. There are holiday food programs, uh, activities, summer activities for children. They get um, they get provided food there. We also get free school meals, food banks, the gurdwaras and churches. We have soup kitchen in Ealing, and so and I, as you know, I tackle oleo food waste. So mm-hmm. you know, people like Felix Project, City Harvest uh, are doing the work on the ground, and we just need to work really closely with them. Mm-hmm. to ensure that those who, who aren't getting it are, are able to get it and that they're able to get nutritious foods and not eating from um, sort of the takeaways on the high street. But, but Iram, Iram, don't, don't you think that it's a, you know, we find ourselves in a really sorry state of affairs because, you know, Labour um, back in 2007 were, had policies and strategies to decrease the number of, you know, children falling into poverty right and it was a positive move 
back then. So why, why, you know, we're talking, you know, seven, sorry, 16 years later, do we find ourselves in a, in a circumstance whereby you yourself have now pointed out we have food banks? Isn't that an indictment on our society now that we have to rely on charity, right, of individuals, of businesses to provide in these food banks something which the government should be providing as, you know, as as you know as norm as norm really yeah uh, I, I i take that point on board uh, however addressing child food poverty is paramount importance immediate steps need to ensure that we get the benefits that are adequate and mm-hmm. we are delivered promptly we also need to focus on creating more job opportunities hmm. especially in regions which are economically disadvantaged and additionally investing in education and community programs that can provide long-term solutions and break that cycle of poverty. Yeah, so the, 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 it's a strategic approach. And I think that if we're working with the on-the-ground knowledge and expertise through joint initiatives, pooling our resources together, we can build a more cohesive and effective support system. And that's why well, yeah, I believe that we, ha- we should have to have a united front to tackle the challenges poverty head-on we are dealing with the poverty and these are the steps that we're taking and like i said sadiq card has um, agreed that uh, we will be implementing so that's 600 pounds per child per term mm-hmm. school, t- school year term that each child will be saving in a primary school so we've already created a strategic um, right. position a community for just like i said city harvest felix project and uh, i see but I mean, it all sounds really nice, Iram, but I'm, I'm just trying to figure out because uh, obviously we're not experts on this, but we what we read from the manifesto and from its ultimate objective is to drive an incentive or in- incentivize people to come towards employment. Uh, one thing that we heard from Joseph is that a majority of the people that are coming to them are already employed. Mm-hmm. They are not people that are not employed. In fact, they're working overtime, but they're not being paid a suitable living jobs. wage. Maybe the minimum wage, quite. But his point was that still it's not sufficient for them. And even if we take the case, Iram, that perhaps there are people that may not be employed. Uh, and some of them still, like we heard from Joseph, may have been fleeing from domestic violence, from other cases. Maybe there's been a death in the family. Obviously, circumstances which we wouldn't wish upon anybody. But let's put this all to the side and still let's put it into context that perhaps there is someone that isn't employed and they haven't been there. They're employed for no reason whatsoever. What is Labour planning to do or over the past six, seven years has done to actually facilitate this employment? And have we seen an increase in that particular employment? Uh, Are there any figures for that? Because I think this is exactly what you set out to achieve in the first place. All of these things, food banks, these projects that Sadiq Khan's bringing in are nice, but they weren't initially part of the plan. The Mm. initial objective was to drive employment. So have we we achieved that? Well, what we need to do is we need to abolish the non-DOM status. So the super-rich that are living outside the UK don't have to pay as much tax right. and that's one of the things that Labour has said that okay. we want well, to make sure that sh- they shouldn't declare. We just, sorry, shouldn't we, shouldn't we just have started with that then rather than starting with child um, benefit? Uh, well, it's a strategic approach like I said. You know, we are reach- charity organisations working with them with all uh, resources, community support groups uh, for people who don't have jobs because they'll need 
emotional and social support hmm. as well. Okay. So there is a knock-on effect on their well-being. Okay. I, I think the, the simple question from Joseph was, why are we starting with child benefit? I mean, you, hmm. you've just cited yourself that one of the major problems is tax levy and the way that mm. it, it's utilised by the rich to, to benefit themselves. We could have, I mean, I don't think we should, uh, nobody would disagree with the fact, apart from the rich themselves, that we should do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't we start with that instead? I mean, w- the real question is, why are we doing this at the expense of children? We don't deny that there is a harm in children, although we say that maybe it outweighs the cons. That's well, probably what Labour thinks. Yeah, but Keir doesn't want to make an unfunded commitment. Yeah, so what what we're saying is that we need to be fiscally responsible uh-huh, uh-huh. so that we align our budget constraints with economic stability, yeah? yeah? And that that cap can be framed as a measure to control welfare spending and ensure that resources are allocated effectively. Correct. We, look, mm-hmm. we know the weaknesses there are going to be um, caused divisions within the Labour Party, and mm-hmm. that might alienate right. some party members. Okay. So right? let we, me just jump in here then, Aaron. I mean, given the current economic climate that we find ourselves in the UK. I mean, what are there any immediate steps you think that this current uh, incumbent government could or should take to alleviate child poverty and its, its effects on those families? Because, you know, the saving that uh, the government has made in the short term is $1.3 billion because of this cap. But, you know, we've seen, you know, just in PPE, COVID PPE uh, wastage, right, in excess of six billion. So, you know, on the one hand, we're saving and we're we're actually hitting those uh, within society who who don't have the capacity, right, to help themselves, right? And they don't have, exactly, Kumar, they don't have the voice, the children, right, uh, to save 1.3 billion. But on the flip side... Hey ho, you know, there's six billion going missing on PPE VIP contracts. Yeah, I mean, may I add, I mean, there are opportunities here mm-hmm. for policy modification. We could be support- supporting the policy, doesn't mean endorsing it in its current form, but mm-hmm. there might be opportunities mm-hmm. to advocate for modifications later on down the line. Right. Mm-hmm. And we can address those concerns by doing stakeholder management and an open dialogue, right, with communities. Uh, to get a more nuanced understanding of better policy formulation, as your uh, previous caller said. We can build a broader economic plan. The policy can be part of a broader economic plan that emphasises on responsible spending, whilst also addressing poverty and inequality, right? And it's alignment with uh, standards as well that could mitigate some of these criticisms that's come up. Mm -hmm. Um, And like I said, you know, there are going to be threats. Um, perhaps from some Labour supporters uh, there, there may be uh, if not handled carefully the way that we're giving the message out there could be uh, some damage on a reputational level so we, that's why we need to make sure that the message is consistent and clear mm-hmm. all the way through and it, it, we do commit to social justice and equality hmm. Well uh, Iram. Thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking to you and uh, you outlining outlining for us Labour's uh, stance regarding the two-child uh, benefits cap. Thank you very much for joining us this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. Okay. 0208 687 uh, or tweet us at uh, Voice of Islam UK. I mean, 
you know, if you're a parent, you're being affected by this. Yeah, yeah. call in. Yeah, we need to know. We need to hear. You know what your voice is regarding this. You know, has it actually stimulated you to finding extra employment, hmm. or on the flip side, has it actually been a hammer to you know just kind of knock you back down? Yeah, this is exactly what I think p- parents will be able to tell better. I mean, I've got yeah, two. Exactly. Ki- I've got two kids right now, and they're right. both young. So I don't know what it's actually going to necessarily feel like to have an extra one or two or three children, mm-hmm. particularly. But I can I can still tell that that child benefit goes a long way. Mm-hmm. I mean, like over the past two three years, we've seen an increase in so many products prices, um, and this child benefit really helps a lot of people. Uh, even though a lot of the people that I personally know who are fully employed, full time employed, mm-hmm. and despite that, they really very much value this uh, because. You know, at times there will be families which are very much going into loans, going into overdrafts. Mm. They're paying interest on that. Well, it's not just that. I mean, just with our first guest, uh, Joseph, saying that if you know you have a lot of um, local authorities assigning uh, premises or assigning homes, right, mm. to those who have been maybe abused, victims yeah. of abuse, for whatever reason they're homeless, mm. right. So fine, that's a really good thing, right? The local authorities are doing. They're giving them uh, premises to live in. But then, if there's nothing in that premises, then isn't it just so stark, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And he was yeah, talking about the fact that... It's like, like being in a prison cell, right? It is. It's pretty much like that. And you, like Joseph said, we're saving now, but imagine what kind of psychological impact that kind of childhood mm. would have on an, a person who then becomes an adult. Uh, we can't deny the fact that it's going to have did, serious... Did, did, did you understand my, like earlier on, my, my reference to Dickensian? Victorian You're going to have to explain right? it. I mean, I w- well, no, I'm, I mean, not, I'm not that old, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so nice of my co-host, right? He thinks I was knocking about in the times of Dickens, right? So we're talking about Victorian times. Thanks. I, I look good for my age. I know, you absolutely do. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, in those, I mean, we're talking Victorian times. Right, right, right. Yeah. We've so got Victorian, an image, I think everyone's got an you know, image and, 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 You know, exactly. Yeah. In those days, you didn't, you didn't have things like the NHS. It was literally, if you were poor, you died, right? Yeah. You couldn't get healthcare. That's why the NHS to this country is a boon, is a reward, right? right? And you know, we're going a bit off off subject, but uh, Nuremberg Bevin, right? The then uh, Labour Health Minister, with the inception of the NHS, right, over seventy five years ago, said, "Look, you know what? We need to have a service, right? A medical service which is free at the point." of clinical service right so regardless of if you've got money you have money you don't have money wow. you can get treated mm. because I mean, up to that point yeah. you couldn't here's the thing right we're not we're not talking about luxury here we're talking about child poverty yeah I mean, we're talking just, about necessity right? people about, this is poverty we're talking yeah. about well, well, yeah it's necessity and like Joseph right? said it, it's things like clothes like food like like a bed yeah. uh, we're not talking about anything yeah we're not talking about the latest iPhone exactly right? or so, anything I, like that I feel that. like this is where Yes, absolutely. It's upon it's upon a, a government, even from it's an Islamic incumbent. perspective. Yeah, we learn from the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam that mm-hmm. um, that every single governor will be asked about their people, mm-hmm. and then that this is a narration of the Prophet peace be upon him that every single governor will be asked about his people, and every single family will be asked 
about their people that are responsible underneath them. Every single father and mother will be asked about their children. Mm -hmm. So the responsibility is on everyone, but mm -hmm. the ultimate umbrella falls upon the country's management. Mm -hmm. They will be asked about what they did to help their people. Yeah, or didn't, as mm -hmm. the case may be. Well, we're joined by our final guest uh, of today on this segment, uh, Scott Compton. Now, Scott is Senior Policy Advisor at Action for Children, a leading charity supporting vulnerable children, young people and families across the UK. Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, Scott. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show today. Hello, good afternoon. So um, we're talking about child poverty, uh, specifically the two-child benefit cap. Um, you know, mm -hmm. could you, just before going into those specifics, just provide us and our listeners an overview of the work that you do at uh, Action for Children in the UK? And you know, what, what are your specific initiatives? Sure. So, uh, we, well, we have hundreds of services across the UK, uh, ranging from children's centres to fostering and adoption services, parenting programmes, um, and lots, lots more. Um, and we don't run uh, sort of specific services for poverty alleviation, mm -hmm. uh, like we don't run food banks or we're not providing financial advice. Um, but what we find is that in our children's centres, uh, in our family support services, um, our frontline workers spend a lot of time supporting their families just to meet their basic needs. So, you know, they're on the phone to their energy company advocating on their behalf. Um, they're taking them down to the supermarket or a food bank to top up the cupboards, trying to source extra clothes or, or you know, other basic essentials. Um, and often that means, you know, it's getting in the way of the kind of support that they actually kind of came to us for in the yeah, first place. Um, okay, and that's that, something that's we've a, seen more and more of in the last few years. Well, and very much we really appreciate it. Sorry. Hello? Sorry, Scott. I think we've got our lines a bit crossed there. So carry on. Sorry, carry on. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that's something, as I say, we, we've been really concerned about, um, uh, particularly in the last couple of years. Um, and, of course, we also lobby government to change policies that are contributing to rising child poverty, um, like the very low rates of support within universal credit and, indeed, like the, the two-child limit policy. Mm, yeah. All right. OK. So, I mean, obviously, we we are right now at the, the crux of the matter, which we've been kind of debating for the past almost an hour now, Yeah. which is this child benefit cap. Yeah. What do you think? There are those who argue that people just need to get a better job, that mm -hmm. there needs to be something done, but this needs to be capped. This needs to remain. And then there are those who argue that perhaps people need this child benefit even beyond the two policy. What do you think? Well, we, we absolutely think that the two child limit needs to go. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what we're talking about is an extra payment um, that a family receives in their child in their universal credit that's denied to them if they have a third or subsequent child um, that's worth more than three thousand pounds a year and what that means is that you know you're depriving families of vital income that they need to ensure that their children's basic needs are met um, and the kind of reality of this is you know it's something that we see in our, our our services every day it's it's been a, a devastating policy for many of the families that action for children uh, frontline workers support every day and particularly during the the cost of living crisis um, it's one of the biggest drivers of child poverty um, and you know the, the 
sort of child poverty rates are projected to fall almost entirely within larger families in years to come. So any government that's serious about tackling child poverty will eventually ultimately have to um, address this particular policy. Mm. And so, you know, we, we just had a Labour councillor on, uh, Aram Woolley. So she was really making the, uh, I suppose, the call that we have they have to be strategic whether it be labor whether it be the conservatives it needs to be a coordinated uh action so yeah do you do you agree with that well i think you know politics aside you know we're really clear that any government serious about tackling child poverty will have to confront this head-on um and you know labor has said that they are going to be labor focused on child poverty um uh, so you know even it may not be an issue they do on day one but ultimately they are going to have to 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 to, to uh, confront this if they're serious about child poverty on the question of um cost because that often gets raised mm-hmm. you know i think we need to um uh consider what the long-term consequences of child poverty are you know we know that it's hugely damaging to public services and public finances one estimate has put the cost of child poverty at 39 billion pounds a year okay so you know it puts pressure on schools on the nhs on social on social services i mean and it has huge consequences for childhood development and their later life chances uh you know children who've grown up on a low income on average do worse at school uh they earn less as adults and of course they suffer poorer physical mental health um so i think we need to look a little bit beyond some of these immediate short-term costs and think about um the bigger picture Mm, i totally agree with that i mean what i mean are there any specific legislative changes or policy reforms that your organization action for children in the uk is advocating to better address this uh, problem of child poverty yeah, so I think firstly we need to address that basic inadequacy in the system. So we've mm-hmm. been calling for um, an increase in, the, in that child payment in universal credit by £15 a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also need to get rid of the benefit cap and the two-child limit because both of those policies um, dra- uh, uh, drag down the income of families in poverty even further below those already inadequate levels. Um, so uh, the two-child limit needs to be scrapped. That alone would lift a quarter of a million children out of poverty overnight. Wow. Um, but we need to go beyond that and, and actually increase the level of that payment as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. I mean, how can our listeners get involved and support the efforts of your, your, your charity in, you know, in helping and combat child poverty um, and improving those lives of those vulnerable children and families? Well, they can visit our website, actionforchildren.org.uk, where there's lots of information on different ways that they can get involved, whether it's fundraising, campaigning, volunteering. Um, And, of course, for any parents or or carers who are listening to this and who may be themselves struggling financially, um, I'd really recommend that they contact uh, Turn To Us, which is a national charity that helps people in financial hardship. Mm -hmm. They can find lots of information there. You know, on their um, and also check what benefits they're entitled to, and of course they could also speak to their um, their citizens' advice as well. Excellent. Oh well, um, Scott, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And you, take care. Thank you. Have a good day. O two o eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. So, uh, do you have the results of the poll? 
Okay, you don't have the results of the poll. I dropped you right in it. I threw you right under the under the bus there, Cameron. Don't worry. So we did actually ask all our uh, listeners out there on on our Instagram. Uh, should the two-child benefit cap be lifted? So overwhelmingly, 82% said yes. Wow, okay. There you go. There so you either go. lifted or uh, you know, just, just shelved. There's the public opinion. Please. Yeah, there you go. The public has spoken. So just to finish off, I mean, we've, we've looked at in terms of uh, what both both sides were saying regarding this. I mean, any concluding... Uh, yeah, concluding. I think it works both ways. Ultimately, the the, the government has a responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they're going to try and set out an objective, they need to fulfil it and not come up with. They need to come up with tangible results to that, which I feel like unconvincingly has not been done with the employment strategy they've tried to put out. And ultimately, again, parents and families also have a responsibility. However, if they are working and they still can't achieve that, of course, like I said, the the last thing the Prophet said is the government will be asked about their people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very well said. Well, I mean, that brings us to the end of the first hour. Please join us after the news where we'll be talking about zakat, which is most probably the answer to things like child poverty. Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome back to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Taliban, and Imam Kumar Ahmed. So we've just spent the first hour talking about child poverty um, and the two-child benefit cap, whether it should be scrapped, whether it should be maintained. Why are children the focus or the target of uh, the savings for the government? Maybe the answer is in the second hour. Well, you know, it's uh, quite ironic, yeah? I'll tell you why. Because (laughs) the first segment, we're talking about something which affects those who are living in poverty. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's something that they receive and that's for them. And it's mainly going to be affecting them. Mm -hmm. Now we're talking about something which is going to affect those who are rich. (laughs) But ultimately, ultimately, it's going to affect The positive effect of it will be that it affects society. But it's cool to hear, because I remember in the last segment we were talking to the the, the almost councillor, I think it was, Uh, uh, candidate, councillor candidate, candidate. let me correct my words there. Um, She spoke about the fact that, you know, we need to tax the rich, we need to tax the rich, we need to tax Mm -hmm. the rich. This is taxing the rich. The rich, yeah. So we're talking in the second hour about zakat. Uh, I mean, is it a key to a fairer economic system? And is it actually viable mm. in the society right. that we live in? I think that, you know, it's like many concepts mm. on paper, as a concept, they are perfect. You're right? Right, you're right. But actually, when taken off the drawing board, mm. yeah, when taken off the drawing board, we don't, uh, and actually put into real life, uh, does it actually work? So we're going to be looking. Uh, so zakat is one of the five pillars of Islam and is obligatory form of charity for all eligible Muslims. It refers to the act of giving a portion of one's wealth to those in need as a means of purifying one's wealth and achieving social and economic justice. Hmm. I mean, is there is there anything in the Quran that uh, points us out? Points yeah, this yeah. out to us. So we have. First of all, let me before I talk talk, talk about zakat specifically. Right. Everybody talks about zakat, and it almost seems like that's the only sort of financial solution that Islam gives. Mm-hmm. Where, whereas 
quite frankly, that's not the case. Um, mm-hmm. There are many different ways that the Quran has mentioned different ways, different taxes, different levies that we must pay at different intervals and rites of passages in mm-hmm. the Quran for different things. Like, for example, there is one separate verse, and this isn't even talking about zakat, which talks about a a charity or a tax which must be put on people but also paid by the government for who for families for the poor Mm -hmm. for travelers for orphans for children Mm -hmm. and this is something completely separate to zakat so while i think it's really important to talk about zakat Mm -hmm. it's not the only thing Mm -hmm. but it is the main thing because it's one of the five fundamental i mean that's why you know the 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 religion of islam yeah yeah it's so beautiful because actually uh our our secular systems, if in fact, right, are actually built on Islamic foundations. They're built on scripture. Right? They're Isn't built bizarre, on scripture. Right? It's not like we came up with the idea, oh, that sounds good, let's do it. Yeah. It's there. Yeah, this because is like, something, we've just been talking yeah. about taxation, like in this, count, in this country, not just in this country, in most countries, you have different forms of taxation, right? You have uh, expenditure taxation. So mm-hmm. the more you spend, the more you get taxed, right? right? Um, you have income, right? The more you, you, you earn and rightly so, the more you should be taxed because right. all that income, oh, sorry, all that tax is then what the government spends in the need or for the benefit of those who can't. Yeah, absolutely right. So we have zakat, we have sadaqah, we have many different types mm. of forms of charity. Some of them are voluntary, some of them are obligatory, and one of those obligatory forms of charity is zakat. Mm-hmm. And as Talib, you mentioned already, zakat is much more than just a financial sacrifice. In fact, it's supposed to be something which is aimed to purify you. But let's kind of right now stick to the fundamentals of what it's supposed to achieve. Now, the Quran in chapter 9 mm-hmm. talks about... It, People who are eligible must actually pay this zakat, what we call zakat. And like we said, the objective of it will be to purify themselves and also help those around them. Mm -hmm. The proper way that zakat is supposed to function is that it will not allow idle money and idle finance to stay in one place for too long. Mm -hmm. And it ensures that the money and finance circulates in society. And the way this works is that if someone has enough finance and it's sitting there and they haven't either invested in it or they haven't used it for a certain amount of time, most normally a year, then they have to pay a tax on it. And what that allows is, is that that money still circulates around in society. Mm -hmm. It also, what it does, it forces people, you know how Labour was saying they need to go into finding employment. This forces people to find ways to actually invest their money Mm -hmm. into society in ways that will actually then benefit people as well rather than have it sitting there stagnant and this is what we're going to come to now because in the current capitalist society where we have everything that works in interest people can do that mm-hmm. where they can have money just sitting around to some extent to some degree and survive with that within interest society mm-hmm. but if we have an islamic society where that isn't an option you're going to have to invest it you're going to have to put it into business yeah. that's going to then benefit people benefit the public and i think i think one of the things is that uh, we don't think of wealth money for instance as a product no and, it, and in fact it is it's it's Basically, it has no. It, it's it's not a concept. It's not. There's. It's not an intangible thing, right? Mm. Although, say for instance, you know, if you've got a bank account, you don't physically see. Like, yeah. say for instance, you've got in your bank account a hundred pounds, right? Yeah. You know, you can't. You don't see that physically. Yeah. yeah? You, you just know that there's a one, a couple of zeros on your, you know, whether it be on your smartphone, mm. whether it be on your your computer, right. Whatever it may be, right? So it's that phys- that understanding that actually, no, money is a physical product. And you can trade that physical product, right? And the more you trade it, in fact, it's, it's beneficial to oneself 
but as a whole, hmm. it's beneficial to society. I mean, I, I really think there's a card. I mean, like I said, this is just one of the many things, but mm-hmm. it's already nipped in the bud that there's the question that Labour's been trying to resolve. They want people to just think, how am I going to get my money? How am I going to spend it? Mm-hmm. And this is what Zakat makes people do because they don't want, ultimately, businessmen, people who are of affluence, don't want to have to pay taxes. They mm-hmm. just they would rather they invest that money and benefit people that way. And what Zakat does is says to them, you've got a time limit. Mm-hmm. You've got a time limit. If you don't use your money in a beneficial way, you're going to have to pay anyway. So this is something that's really great about Zakat. But even then, the, the people that pay zakat, we already know that generally, if you're someone who is not affluent, let's say you are living in poverty, the chances and likelihood of you having money left over at the end of the day or the end of the year mm-hmm. and having to pay something on that, which we call zakat, are prob- is probably quite unlikely. You, you, for the most part, won't be affected by this tax. Yeah, exactly. But you would receive from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas those who have, obviously, affluence and they are well off, they also have a chance not to have to pay for it. Mm. If they invest so it and use it properly, why it's so, such an equitable thing. Right? Yeah, because so it's not like one you know, side. God has given God has given you the chance, right? Whether you are the wealthy person, yeah, who has a lot of assets, yeah, and remember these are idle assets, yeah, because we do have. I mean, and we're going to explore this later on in the segment that you know there are questions like, well, hold on, um, do I have to pay zakat on my house, hmm. right? Hmm. Yeah. Because maybe, like in the West, I've got a mortgage on the house, right? Right. Do I really own the house? And, you know, there are all these very, I suppose, you know, on the margin. <laughs> yeah, gray areas. Right? Gray areas, That's right. yeah. But actually, the, the, the pure essence of Zakat is a fair and equitable I, redistribution of I wealth. like the word, the word that you use, equitable. Yeah, because that's that's, be. that's what it's supposed to be and where we should be thinking as well as a society. Um that we give to people what they need. It's not about want. In the materialistic world, it's over, I mean, in the materialistic world, it will always be about want. Yeah. In an Islamic society, everyone's conscious of what everyone needs, need. and this is really exactly. important. So when we go into understanding zakat, right? So uh, as we've already said it's, uh, it's actually the fourth pillar of Islam. Uh, uh, you've already mentioned it. Zakat, that actual word means that which purifies and fosters. Right, so it's very important to understand the fostering part. Yeah, it's beneficial. It actually multiplies. Okay, yeah. uh, by subtracting the share of the community from all wealth, the rest is purified for those entitled to make use of it. And by the application of the proceeds uh, to the service of community, society as a whole, uh, that means that hence the community is fostered right or the welfare of the community is fostered and propagated zakat is not a voluntary tax uh, or charity no, uh, sorry i should say is not a voluntary charity neither is it a tax it is an obligation on muslims to fit a certain criterion that's right now according to the law of islam one has to pay 2.5% of one's cash money capital stock and tradable assets, including jewellery in gold and silver, of which one has in possession for one full year, provided that one had more than the accessible limit. Now, it must be remembered that zakat is not an income tax, which is charged on one's income. Uh, it's charged on one's savings. So that, you know, basically your assets, mm-hmm. which never see the light of day. Uh, and it's spent, okay, it's spent wholly for the benefit of the poor and needy. So... You know, you might argue, well, hold on, you know, if I'm going to be having to give zakat, then actually who does that, you know, who does that portion of my wealth go to, hmm. right? 
it only goes to those who are needy and who are poor. And I think you've made that um, that caveat, right? It's not those who want it, it's those who need it. Absolutely. I think even though it might seem like it's a selfless thing to do, it's actually not so much selfless. Mm-hmm. There is... Uh, the Quran says it will multiply for you as well this is really important to know I mean any kind of financial uh, economy is against hoarding wealth nobody wants too much wealth that's not going to go anywhere what that's going to result in is in a, in a hyperinflation because when too much asset is in one place then what that means is there's less asset out there and if there's more population population increase of demand what they're going to do is they're going to need to print more money mm-hmm. and that ultimately if someone had a million pounds before in their bank account and it wasn't moving anywhere and it hyperinflates, they don't have a million pounds anymore, mate. Mm. 100, 100 years down the line, you're going to have a lot less value for your buck. If it was moving around... No, don't get me into that 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 thing, right? Oh, on, no. Because we're going to go into a different subject now. Oh, I can about, see, I can yeah, see yeah, that yeah, smile I mean, turning yeah. on. But let's come back to the point. Yeah. The point is that as the verse of the Quran states, it, it may seem like a selfless thing and the intention will always be that it will be, but it will mm. always benefit even the rich and the society as a whole. Yeah. Ultimately, hoarding is not going to be something profitable for a country as a whole. Then this is yeah. what is the car I mean, tackles. Yeah, you know, I don't know if I'm, I'm sure it's changed now, but you know there was this uh, trivial pursuits kind of fact that right. 99% of the world, yeah, world, yeah, yeah, you right, hear this right, is owned by point spot zero 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 it's zero ridiculous. one percent. It's, it's actually ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, if Zakat was around, that they, they wouldn't want to pay the Zakat on that, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's that's what I'm saying. That, that it's you know for the for the rich and the wealthy and the super rich and super wealthy. A capitalist we've seen, is. We've seen now, and it's not just individuals. It's companies, right? I mean, more equitable governments around the world. I'm not pointing any fingers, right? Hmm. Have in this last period of. Um, let's say where the Ukraine-Russian war has been going on for now almost two years, right? So, energy prices went through the roof. Everybody knows. So, about that. <laughs> uh, just to give you an example, uh, the French-owned company EDF Electric uh, Electricity Generating Company, right? In France, raised their prices by four percent. Now, EDF in the UK raised their prices by fifty-four percent. Wow. So the profits that these energy companies were making at the they had, they had they had record profits this year. Yeah, yeah. Of you know the taxpayer here and the not taxpayer just the those who are using yeah. utilities in this country is astronomical. Absolutely. Right. We're talking thirty billion, thirty-two billion. Shell, right? Shell, BP, uh, Centrica. They've been making astronomical, you know, bone. Well, not bonuses. Profits hmm. because. Not because people are using more, which is fair enough, but because why? Oh, you know, wholesale energy prices were up, yeah. right? So that begs the question: Why are they not getting a windfall tax? And why is that windfall tax not coming back to yeah, you know, to us, the exactly. you know, us, the people who are paying it? Exactly. At the end of the day, wow. Yeah. So that's another that's another topic for another oh, wow. day. But I'm telling you, right. <laughs> But um, we have our first guest of the day regarding this, uh, talking about zakat. Uh, we welcome on the show Imam Khalid Gon- uh, Gonzalez, missionary of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community serving in Granada in Spain. Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you. Uh, Khalid Saab, how are you? Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. Peace and blessings be upon you guys too. I'm good and thank you for inviting me on the show. No, you're always a pleasure, never a chore. 
So, <laughs> so we're talking about zakat. We've touched on it. We've given some bases for uh, our uh, non-Islamic listeners out there. Uh, hopefully, there's quite a few, a couple of million of you out there. Um, uh, uh, you know, as to you know, it being the fourth pillar of Islam. Now, even though zakat is a pillar, the fourth pillar of Islam, many people are exempt from paying zakat. How do these exemptions work, and why do they exist? Sorry, it can't. Sorry, could you? Oh, repeat, repeat the question. question? Fine. Uh, Sorry, so, yeah, you know, even it. even though zakat is a pillar of Islam, yeah, many people are exempt from paying zakat. How do yeah. these exemptions work? I mean, who are these people who are exempt, and why do they exist? Yeah. Okay. So, just to clarify one one point, um, respectfully, um, zakat is indeed the first. The first pillar of Islam is the kalimat The second is salat to pray, the five daily prayers. And the third is, in fact, the glut. It's a common, in fact, one common misconception. People usually get mixed up. I used to do it all the time when I was younger. Well, I'm going to have to sack the producer there, right? Yeah. The producer's going, <laughs> it's okay. Don't worry. Don't uh, worry. I'm going to throw her under the bus. This is like the third, the third, um, the third version of Islam. And then comes after that is, uh, is uh, the song, which is the mm-hmm. uh, fast. And then the last, and lastly, Hajj, Hajj. Which, in fact, just shows how important it really is. You know, mm-hmm. people would naturally people maybe think because everyone does practices Ramadan which is the 30 days of fasting throughout the year and they usually think that maybe that's more important than Zakat but no mm. um, your question was regarding uh, those people who are exempt right mm-hmm. so the people who are exempt uh, it's, it's very very simply put those who are poor okay mm-hmm. and someone say oh someone could be poor according to this person according to that person of course we're not talking about a an Islamic government so the Islamic government would obviously decide who is poor, just like nowadays. You want to get benefits in the UK? Well, for that, you're going to have to tell exactly how much you've, you earn, etc., etc., etc. You have to give certain figures, and they decide whether you are liable for that or not. Then we have those who are disabled or simply have no means of income, meaning that they can't themselves go out and work. And we know that it's not the case of someone being lazy, for example, there are some people who benefit. Uh, take advantage rather of governments that they live in, in the country that they live in, and they and there's one narration of the Holy Prophet وسلم, in which there was a poor man who had no money, and the Holy Prophet وسلم, told him to he gave him some job to do, a simple task, and that was to go collect wood. And well, he began to do that. Um, he began chopping wood after the Prophet وسلم, gave, him, gave him an axe, and he came back and started selling this wood, and obviously because of Obeying the Prophet, well, there was many blessings in that. So we are not trying to encourage, you know, there's no Islamic government is trying to encourage a, a, a group of people to not work and become lazy and idle and then mm-hmm. later on take advantage of the government. Then we have those who are slaves. Of course, someone who's a slave, you know, he's life, he has practically nothing to his name. And in fact, uh, one of the purposes of the, of the God is to free those very people, to, sleep, to, to free the slaves, and later on, support them. It's another very vast topic in Islam, slavery, etc. Um, but simply put, we're not going to free loads and thousands and hundreds of thousands of slaves all at once, and then they won't have means of their own maintenance, etc., etc. Well, this regard is there to, to support them. And then there's those who are in financial debt. If you physically cannot pay something, you know, <laughs> the Islamic government is not the China government. And when I say Islamic government, I don't refer to Saudi Arabia. I refer to the times of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, and then the times of the four rightly guided uh, 
caliphs who came mm-hmm. after him and how they dealt with such issues. And people who were in such situations were not forced in the sense that, you know, that, oh, you know, we're going to force you. If you don't, we're going to kill you or whatever. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's a whole history lesson in itself. But we we do want to kind of understand, Khalid, uh, what the kind of systematic understanding is behind zakat. There are certain criteria that are in place, how much you have to pay, what kinds of assets you need to pay zakat on. Where did this all kind of come from and how does it exactly work? I understand that it could probably quickly get a little bit confusing for people. Right, so... To give a brief, brief introduction on Zagat, just so we can understand it a bit more. Um, Zagat has been mentioned in the Quran about 32 times, not about, it's been mentioned 32 times. The word itself literally means purification. And it was first made compulsory in two two Hijri, so two years after the migration of the Prophet and the Muslims towards Medina. The reason I tell you this is because in the beginning, it wasn't an established system. It was made incumbent upon the Muslims, but it wasn't an established system. Then we have a narration to clarify the importance of it, which is the Prophet Muhammad says, invite the people to testify that none has the right to be worshipped but Allah, and I am Allah's messenger. And if they obey you to do so, then teach them that Allah has enjoined them the five prayers every day and night. And if they obey you in that also, then teach them that Allah has made it obligatory for them to pay the zakat from their property. And it is to be taken from the wealthy among them and given to the poor. Now, we don't want people to think that it's, it's the typical kind of, oh, all those people who are hard working, you know, we can take all their money and give it to the poor. No, it's more like that. Um, in his lecture, or rather speech, um, of the Muslim, the second Khalifa, the second Caliph, mm-hmm. he's just briefly, I'll just briefly read a short extract. He says, Islam introduced the system of the gods, which is a 2.5% annual tax on wealth that is held in the form of gold, silver, currency, or other assets for a period of more than one year. Meaning, assets nowadays is a very broad term. Back then it could have been animals, houses, etc., etc. Then he says, the proceeds of this tax are used to promote welfare of the poor. Thus, if a person has 40 rupees in his possession and he keeps the money for the entire year, he must pay one rupee as a guard to the government. Mm-hmm. Meaning it's only 2.5%. Um, it's not a means of taking, or it's not a tax like nowadays, you have to it's taxed upon your income. Rather, it's taxed upon that wealth, like you were mentioning, like Bermud was somebody was mentioning earlier, that is it's not being moved. It's not in any cycle of, of, of the economy. And it's, it's, it's being hoarded there. Which obviously is a form of greed. Obviously, some people can say, "Well, it's, it's also a form of, you know, someone wishes to save up." But then again, the whole point of zakat is is in the meaning of the word itself, which means to purify yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as a Muslim, our main objective is the life after after this life, you know, mm-hmm. the the hereafter. And so, with that in mind, giving, you know, like Amos said before, giving in this sense, which is such a small amount, two point five percent of that, which is hoarded up throughout the year and, and unmoved, right? Giving that will eventually, uh, talking from a spiritual sense, um, cause a spiritual reformation within you, which, which causes our purification. You know, it's, it's, it's what man loves the most in this life, and that is wealth. Mm-hmm. So giving that to the poor, and that helps the distribution of wealth within, within the countries. Mm. So, um, Khaled, are there any misconceptions about uh, Zakat that you can 
uh, clarify for us? Like, for instance, I mean, you know, a lot of people think it's a tax. Yeah, there are a lot of misconceptions about it. The thing is, um, history, they say history is very biased, you know. You know if you here in Spain, they have a very misconstrued um, concept of Islam. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of times they say, oh, well, the, the, the Dimmis, or the people who were not as Muslims, and they were of monotheistic religions, they usually had to pay a jizya. And that was a tax upon them, etc. Et et mm-hmm. The thing is, the God <clears throat> is only for the Muslims. So the Zagat is 2.5%. Mm-hmm. Throughout history, those who lived in harmony with the Muslims were told and they were ordered to pay jizya, which is, you can say, the counterpart to, jihad, uh, to the God, sorry. Mm-hmm. And that, is, that was usually 1%. Okay. And this can differ throughout different scholars and throughout history. And it would never, I'm pretty sure, it would never supersede that of the God. So this is one misconception, that the people who are not Muslims in Muslim governments or countries, they were mistreated. But the truth of the matter is that that jizya, that tax, you can say, that they would pay, which is usually 1%, not even 2.5%. In return, the Muslims, in treaty, which they would always uh, honor, promised their protection to, to those people. And it would be an alliance. In fact, when the, in Spain, when the Muslims could no longer could provide that protection and the Christians were slowly taking over, they gave that money back to those people who were paying their jizya, said, don't worry, mm-hmm. we cannot afford this protection to you, so we're not going to keep this wealth anymore from you. Okay. This is the thing you paid for, so in honor of that, of that contract, we will give you back the money which you paid, and you may do with it what you will. And then after that, well, some migrated to to uh, to uh, Morocco, and some, well, most of, mostly were forcefully forcefully converted and were killed. And other other misconceptions are usually, oh, does everyone have to pay? Well, no, of course, if you are a widow at home and you have no means of income, you can't work, you're disabled, this or that. Mm-hmm. Of course, anyone who is young, fit, strong, healthy, and comes under all the basic conditions of being able to work, being fit and healthy, they are the ones who have to pay. Mm, mm, that's right yeah. you know you're absolutely right I mean in the sense that there were literal countries um, and civil- civilizations where which especially in the Persian area in, in the time of the different kinds of conquests that happened where they actually preferred the tax the Muslim tax to the tax that they were already paying because it was far less exactly. than, than what they had to pay and I'm, I kid you not I kid you not some of them sure. actually said we might as well become Muslim we have to pay less yeah. and of course this is not the way to become Muslim but this no, is just to exactly give you an idea that. of how len- how lenient the mm. Muslims were to, to others when especially whether it was a treaty or whether it was a mm. conquest regardless but yeah Khalid moving on um, we talk about Zakat and you were talking about this we're trying to we're, we're portraying Zakat as more than a tax mm-hmm. this is what we're trying to do it's, 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 a, it's a means of purification it's supposed to benefit society in many different ways so Khalid like, do you have any instances or stories even of how zakat has positively impacted society and the people that receive it? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a famous story that uh, our Khalifa even mentioned recently in his khutbah, and it, it wasn't the first time he's mentioned it. But before I say this, uh, tell you this story, I just wanted to make it very clear that because the money is a very personal thing, that people mm-hmm. might not realize it, it's a very personal thing, a very personal thing. So when we understand this obligation of doing zakat, Everyone's okay with, oh yeah, I have to do the Kalama, that's okay. I have to pray five times a day, that's alright. But when it comes to the gods, it's very personal. <laughs> they sometimes, some people usually say, oh, why do I have to pay? Why are they telling me to pay? 
Well, God isn't going to physically come down and tell you, so there will be certain people within the system, within the community, who will ask you to, to pay this to God. And so remember one thing, that you're doing it for God. You're not doing it for the person who literally asked you. Mm-hmm. You're not doing it for anyone else. You're doing it for God. Now, there was one instance um, in the time of Prophet Umar, the second caliph of the Prophet Muhammad, and I'm sure every even a listener probably know this story, but to, to summarize it, he had, he had made a law, right? And it was regarding the, the breast, those, those children who are, haven't, hadn't been weaned, right? those who are still uh, drinking from the breast of their mothers, they were not allowed a certain benefit from the government because he had made the law that those children are already feeding off of the mother and she is getting her allowance. Mm-hmm. One day he was strolling through the night, uh, through the night in, the, in, the, in Medina and he had heard the cries and these children were crying and the mother was stirring the pot and... Hmm. I think Kumar has already touched upon this story, but elaborate for That's us. Already. Yeah, yeah, elaborate right. for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, basically, she was stirring the pot of hot water, and he said, what's going on? Why are the kids crying? And she said, well, basically, I'm just stirring this pot of hot water because there's nothing else I can do. Maybe that will calm them down. Maybe they'll think that I actually got food for them, but I don't. Mm-hmm. But why are they crying? I can't feed them. Why can't we feed them? This is your baby. Well, because... The caliph, not knowing he was the caliph, she mm-hmm. was saying very bravely, saying, oh, the caliph, he's the one who made the law. He's the one who said that, well, those who have been weaned, only they will get the allowance. Being a poor person, she had weaned prematurely her, her son mm-hmm. and, or daughter. We're not sure if it's son or daughter. But, and for that reason, um, she, she couldn't feed off of her of, of the blessed of her mother. So for this reason, he was he was very lamenting and he was blaming himself and he was with his sister. He went all the way back home without telling her who, who he was really. And he got a sack of, of food and he walked all the way back. And when he asked the assistant, may I take this for you? May I carry this for you? I'm here to serve you. And he said, no, this is my own burden. And so he finally got there to the woman and helped her cook the food and helped her with it, etc. And, and this is, for me, it's an inspiring story because it shows you that there's a God isn't some kind of modern political kind of you know movement to, mm-hmm. to gain wealth and then after that be corrupt with it. You know the whole point of the God was purely for the people, purely mm-hmm. and only for the people. That's why we even find Christian countries in those days, African countries, who were very sad upon when Hadrat Umar. And, and the Muslim army had left their country because they felt so much protected by these people and that the distribution of the wealth was extremely fair and just. So we can see from this story how and where the money is used and where it goes, etc. So mm. this is very inspiring for me because it shows that he was taking care with this money mm. of all the people. Mm, very well said Khalid well uh, it's been a pleasure once again speaking to you this afternoon thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show Thank you very much Wa alaikum salam. O two o eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight, or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. And I think I mentioned earlier on, Kumar, right, about concepts. Hmm. So they're all okay on you know on the on the drawing board, hmm. but when actually taken out into the real world. Do those concepts work? Mm. And as uh, Imam Halib was telling us uh, this you know, expiring, inspiring story about uh, Hazrat Umar, you know, one of the um, blessed right, Khalifas, right? What came to my mind was a bit of economic theory, uh, Western economic theory, right? So um, Adam Smith 
wrote the Canons of Taxation. And the whole idea of the Canons of Taxation was to redistribute wealth in an equitable way, hmm. right? From those who are rich in society to those who are needy and were poor. And I think we also touched upon this before, that you know these concepts that economists... Uh, philosoph uh, philosoph are they philosophers? Philosophers. That's the one. Philosophers, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> so philosophers, philosopher. <laughs> yeah, falafels, <laughs> right? Okay. You know these these concepts were actually unbeknowing, right? Yeah. Have that Islamic yeah um, foundation really? That's right. right. That's so that, how bizarre it is. It's quite ironic. I mean, I, I love that that you said that. That basically what we idealized maybe whether it whether it materialized or not we don't know but mm -hmm. what they idealized was no but i mean if, 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 if adam uh, adam i said adam smith when he wrote the canons of taxation yeah. it was purely based on right okay uh, yeah. there has to be a redistribution of wealth mm. from you know those who can afford it to those who can't right yeah. and yes there's nothing to some yeah. there's, there's there's a pure beauty to that right there is because it's it's, I mean, it's an equitable you, solution to, to, right? to a large degree even though we've been gunning down a lot of policies in this show it does work yeah. and it has worked mm. and it will continue to work in this country that un undeniably there are lots of people in this country that are surviving mainly off of that system as we speak mm -hmm. so yeah hats off to that system I mean that's that's absolutely amazing mm. and we see with with the zakat system as Khalid you know explained it quite well you said could it work and and for me, everything hinges upon one thing. Mm -hmm. The system can be great, but if you have corrupt mindsets, mm -hmm. even that could potentially fall back on its heels. Well, it's, it's one of those uh, things uh, or points that uh, Imam Khalid pointed out that, where, you know, and, you know, I, I got it wrong as well. I said it's the fourth pillar. In fact, it's the first pillar, right? The third. Third, yeah, okay. I just got it wrong once again, right? So, <laughs> pillar, right? Three strikes on my mouth. I'm not doing next Monday's show now, right? But anyway, it's the third pillar, but it has that importance, right? But actually, you know, everyone, everyone thinks that, right? Okay, no, we do fast, yeah. we do do Hajj, right? Yeah, it's so important, so important, but actually, they're less important than actually, you know, what you have to spend out of your wealth, right? Or Pay a, a proportion of your wealth if it if it lies idle. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, the thing is, we're supposed to give equal importance to all of them, realistically, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, maybe because it's something like Khalid was saying, it's not. It's it bites you, right? I mean, five times a day we pray. Okay? Yeah. The kalama, all you have to do is say it. Yeah. And perhaps because the God, number one, like he's explained, isn't for someone thing for everyone, mm -hmm. and it's not something that everyone openly speaks about. Mm -hmm. So therefore, we think, okay, well whatever but actually it's really the crux of holding society together mm -hmm. it's what it is and that's exactly fundamentally what it's aiming to do mm -hmm. but like I said at the same time righteousness is absolutely key mm -hmm. so zakah is supposed to you're supposed to feel it you're supposed to feel that pinch yeah. because what that does is it makes you want question well why am I doing it and then the answer you need to give yourself is number one I'm doing it for God and number two I'm doing it for the people and, mm. and the more you can remind yourself about that the more conscious you become of mm. this to the point where zakat is an obligation mm. but the people that do it and the people that are oft, often with their sadaqat and their charity they would do more than that they would mm. go beyond 
Hazrat Uthman, an, for example, the third caliph. Mm-hmm. He, he obviously would have paid his, his taxes and, and his zakat as well. He was a businessman. Mm-hmm. He, he knew he had to do this. But this wasn't really a burden for him. In mm-hmm. fact, he was looking for even more ways to help. Mm-hmm. And there were times where he would come back from Syria, for example, where most of the trade routes ended up and he would have a lot of stock with him. And of course, the journeys at that time wouldn't be a, a day's journey or two mm. days. It would be a couple of months. Yeah. yeah. And and during that time, if he'd left Medina and he'd come back to Medina a couple of months later, he may find he may have found Medina in a completely different situation to what he left it in. Mm-hmm. And often that would happen, that he would come back. And he left Medina and it was okay. Everything was completely fine. Mm-hmm. He'd come back and there was a famine. There was a drought. Right. And one such occasion where he would have returned and he sees that people are literally at the gates and they're trying to find sustenance trying to find food they're trying to find mm-hmm. any kinds of means and Osman Uthman had come back with the intention that hey, yo I'm going to I bought this stuff I'm going to sell it I'm going to mm-hmm. profit from it and that's what a businessman does yeah exactly <laughs> but because Muslims and especially the caliphs had accustomed tuned their mind to the fact that they are conscious of the fact that they need to help others mm-hmm. and this can only happen when you do it and zakat is one way to constantly pinch you in that way mm-hmm. he decided that all of that let's say stock that he built up from the Syrian route all the way down that he was supposed to sell he gave it all out for free mm-hmm. distributed it free of free of charge mm-hmm. and this was a consciousness that is built into Muslims over time whether it's through reminders in the Quran about sadaqah mm-hmm. the obligation of zakat and the various things that we have to do because we do it when we ask ourselves why we do it we know we're doing it for God and mm-hmm. the people yeah, and I think that's that's the point. We we tend to forget that we're ultimately, it's it's those two uh, caveats really for practicing Muslims. Now, number one is to worship God, right? Mm-hmm. And number two is to worship His creation. Yep. So th- these are the two things. I think right? what, what I'm trying to say is that your mindset matters more as well, mm-hmm. even potentially more than the system. Yeah. Because if your mind is corrupt, you will find loopholes in the system. You'll be mm-hmm. like, oh, let me just fix it. For example, in Saudi, potentially a person knows, oh, if I don't use my money by tomorrow, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to get charged the card. Yeah. So, do, they, so it, they just kind it, of like transfer might, the money it, or they use might it once. Do, you might do something with it. Yeah. And in, in, in a kind of devil's advocate kind of way, I could say to you that that could break the system. Mm-hmm. So for me, what it is, it's a conscious awareness, which is Islam is trying to sell more, mm-hmm. that your righteousness matters more than any system. Exactly. Exactly. When nobody's watching you, God's watching you, so yeah, exactly. you wouldn't do that. It's <laughs> exactly, about conscious. Yeah. You've got that all. It's the CCTV yep. in the sky. <laughs> yeah. So uh, anyway, we're, we're joined by our next guest of the day, Imam uh, Tala Ali, who is the missionary of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community serving currently in the Philippines. Oh, wow. Uh, alaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, uh, Imam Tala. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah Thank you for having me on the program. So we're talking about zakat, and you know what is the significance of zakat in Islam, and how does it strengthen the bond between believers and their faith? And I think uh, my co-host Kamar uh, pretty much introed this. So can you kind of add more to this, to this uh, fuel to this, this, this debate? Right. I've been listening to the program, and alhamdulillah, by the grace of God, you guys have covered most of the points, mm-hmm. uh, and very brilliantly so. Um, just to add, I mean, if I can add anything, I would just like to mention what you were uh, saying just before uh, you took me uh, on the call, mm-hmm. uh, was how in Islam, uh, zakat is not really a taxation. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a mindset. So that mindset has been built in the Holy Quran. 
you know, just to be a Muslim, like we were discussing, you mm-hmm. pray, you fast, you go to Hajj, you do the pilgrimage, you declare that you are a Muslim, you believe in one God, etc. So the Holy Quran has placed zakat along with all of these things. Like if you ask someone, are you a Muslim? The next question might be, do you pray regularly? So in the Holy Quran, zakat and salat, Salat refers to the five daily prayers, have been mentioned together so often that there are 27 instances in the Holy Quran where zakat and prayers, uh, salat, have been mentioned in the same phrase simultaneously. Yeah. Um, in the very beginning of the Holy Quran, when uh, Islam introduces uh, who is a righteous person who can truly benefit from the Holy Quran, mm-hmm. um, Islam says, you know, al-muttaqeen, the righteous are those who believe in God. So your faith has to be there, your belief system has to be there. Mm-hmm. Then you have to pray to God, salat, and right away Islam mentions infaq fi sabilillah, spending in the way of Allah. Mm-hmm. So like we were talking about earlier, it's not a taxation mindset. And, you know, we see that a lot in the world that people are, you know, a lot of billionaires, etc. They're really into philanthropy. But mm-hmm. as soon as they hear the word tax, you know, they don't really want to pay that tax. Mm-hmm. Um, so Islam wants to get rid of that mindset where why should I pay? I mean, to be very honest, nobody wants to, you know, get uh, to basically give, out, give away their uh, wealth. Mm-hmm. So this mindset needs to be developed. So the Holy Quran and Islam from the very beginning till the end keeps on focusing this point that zakat, spending in the way of Allah, taking care of the less needy of the society, it's not really something that, that's a tax. Rather, it is something that you have to do to become a better Muslim. And like we discussed earlier, zakat means purification. Mm-hmm. So it's not just purification of uh, your wealth. And um, I would try, like to mention that um, in more detail later on, that how does zakat purify our wealth? But moreover, it's a purification of yourself. Mm. So to become a better Muslim, every believer would like to pay zakat so that they can fulfill their responsibilities towards God as well as towards their um, fellow human beings. Mm. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Oh, that's actually really well put. It's, mm. it's not a tax, it's a mindset. Yeah, and I think that's up. that's a good way to look at it. Um, and it's not just a purification of one's wealth; it's a purification of one's soul, right? Yeah, one's yeah, person, exactly. Right. Outlook right. on life, and but at the same time, um, I mean, this may not be factually true. I mean, like I said in the beginning as well, zakat isn't the only financial model that Islam presents. Mm-hmm. It is just one of them. But people do generally present zakat, um, Imam, as some kind of solution to problems in, in the financial state of affairs. Um, but when we talk about equity, we talk about justice and how. We need to have that in an economic system. What, what does zakat have to offer? So the very concept of zakat is based in the Islamic philosophy of ownership, right? We study capitalism. We study, uh, you know, you mentioned Adam Smith uh, just now. Um, and as of taxation. A, uh, right, taxations. And not just the taxation, just the whole capitalist, uh, mm-hmm. you know, mindset is built on his theories. Um, and as a, uh, as a uh, you know, um, as a uh, opposition to that, we have capitalism where we talk about, you know, the uh, means of uh, production as well as labor. Mm -hmm. So Islam understands and realizes these economic realities. And Islam mentions, very first and foremost, that everything in this heavens and the earth belongs to God. And there are various verses of the Holy Quran, وَلِلَّهِ مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ Again and again, that whatever is in the heavens and the earth belongs to God. And as such, none of us are the owners of anything in this world. Right? If I have right. a agricultural land, if I own a gold mine, if I own a diamond mine, etc., I may have paid exactly. <laughs> so I, have, I, have, I might have paid some amount to buy that land, mm-hmm. but I'm not the true owner. The true ownership, according to Islam, belongs to God. Mm-hmm. Right, and that is the concept that Islam wants to uh, 
uphold that since everything belongs to God, no matter if even if I'm taking care of my employees, if I'm taking care of the laborers, I'm still not taking care of the means of productions which are indeed owned by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they're indeed owned by God. Hence to make the playing field more level, more equitable, like you said. Um, Islam emphasizes on zakat. So that, uh, you know, in the Holy Quran, uh, when Allah mentions, when God mentions that, you know, you should spend on the needy from the zakat, uh, the Holy Quran says, So that the wealth does not remain saturated within the rich among you. So uh, that is the main philosophy of zakat, that equity uh, can never be, you know, achieved in a capitalist system, no matter how much we increase our minimum wage. Because at the end of the day, if I own the land, no one can become as rich as the owner itself. But the owner is not the real owner. The real owner is God. And that is why the Holy Quran says, وَفِي أَمْوَالِهِمْ حَقُّ لِسَائِلِ وَالْمَحَرُومِ That whatever wealth the rich have, there is a right. No, that's the thing, حَقُّن. Islam does not say it's a charity. Mm-hmm. When I give zakat, I'm not giving it, you know, I'm not throwing a bone to the dog, Nauzubillah, mm-hmm. uh, God forbid. The Holy Quran uses the word Hakkul Lisail. It is the right of the poor. Mm. Because mm. I'm making money from the from the resources which are not really owned by me. They belong mm. to God. You're and like I'm a caretaker more welcome. in that sense exactly. of resources. So exactly. going on to that point, right, uh, Imam Tala, you know, what are the conditions that make a person actually eligible to receive the proceeds receive. of Zakat? Yeah? And how okay. do you interpret these criteria in you know in modern day context now right right so the holy quran very clearly mentions in uh, chapter 9 which is surah tawbah in verse number uh, 60 uh, there are eight categories of who uh, upon whom the uh, the zakat money can be spent mm-hmm. so uh, to break it down i will just try to go through it as quickly as i can the poor uh, number 1 and the poor belongs those people who cannot it can include disabled people. It can include those people who are, you know, living under the poverty line, etc. So, are generally, those who are, uh, you know, less fortunate than uh, uh, us, mm-hmm. they are eligible for uh, under the term of the poor. Second, a very similar term is used, the needy, and uh, that has been explained. So, the poor and needy have been differentiated by the scholars as to mean that, uh, whereas the poor are those people who may be able to ask, you know, they go around asking that, you know, I need some funds and need some money. Mm-hmm. The miskeen are those people who actually stay within their homes and they do not ask anyone. Mm-hmm. They have too much dignity or other, uh, you know, uh, for other reasons. They do not go out to ask. Mm. Another, Maybe fallen uh, on hard circumstances. Exactly. And mm. uh, uh, very rightly said, uh, 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 the scholars have mentioned that miskeen can be a person, the needy can be a person who may be able to do job, but he has fallen in, uh, in these hard circumstances. For example, one example that I read was that there's a person who's a laborer or there, there's a person who's a carpenter, and because of one reason or another, he does not have the tools anymore. Mm. So taking care of those people so they become, you know, they can stand on their own feet, mm-hmm. uh, that will fall under the category of needy. Then the staff responsible for collecting of zakat is also eligible to take zakat. Yeah. Meaning those people who are working for the government for mm-hmm. the uh, collection of the funds, they can, their salaries can be paid from this amount as well. Mm-hmm. Then another very interesting, very broad term that is used by the Holy Quran is وَالْمُؤَلَّفَةَ الْخُلُوب That do, for, the, uh, for joining the hearts. And this can mean anything. You know, just to basically to take care of people who are uh, uh, 
to, to strengthen their hearts. Uh, one example that I read about this was, for example, if someone converts to Islam or Ahmadiyyad, and because of that, there's a lot of opposition in their area. Mm. Um, so to help those kind of people um, so that they become strong in their faith or they become strong in their difficult uh, circumstances. But again, it's a very broad term mm-hmm. which can be used to help various sectors in the society. Mm. Then, um, No, I was uh, just thinking, as yeah. you were saying, with the, um, the category of needing, uh, needy, I should say, and you know that's so. I think Conor so apt in say, for instance. I mean, I know you're in the Philippines, but globally, right. after COVID, um, you know, everyone has experienced you know, globally uh, a reduction in trade, and hence maybe lost their jobs, lost their employment, and you know, you have that increase in needy people now, and right. you know, it's pu- you know this this this. Um, let's say there's a cart um this obligation right on incumbent uh, or incumbent uh, muslims should be given to the needy right exactly exactly and uh, the interesting part is uh, that the second caliph uh, of the ahmadiyya muslim community he mentioned that since zakat is taken by the government and distributed by the government no one would feel bad about this Right? So the mm-hmm. money is taken from the rich. They would not feel indebted or they would not feel disgraced by a person hand, uh, giving them a handout. So uh, the second Khalifa, he, uh, second Caliph, uh, he gave the example that if my neighbor is poor and if I give him some money, he will, he will not be able to see me eye to eye. You know, uh, he would basically uh, avoid me. But if, I give, uh, if the zakat is collected by the government, they mm-hmm. first of all know who is the most needy. And then the, those who take this, uh, you know, who take the zakat, they will not feel uh, bad that so and so has helped me. Their, their right. dignity, uh, their, you know, their, their self dignity would uh, remain. Yeah, they wouldn't feel shame. Right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, this is, this is a very ideal situation, Talib. I mean, you've got mm. people who are genuinely in need, and their dignity and their respect and a sense of honor is also being kept intact. It's just absolutely flawless in that sense I mean uh, that's the thing I mean just to elaborate <laughs> I think in all economic terms right there's this theory uh, called the ratchet the ratchet mechanism so in recent times everyone's been quite affluent or you know not had all these uh, big uh, events like COVID like we here in the UK yeah. uh, leaving the European the Union uh, yeah. war, uh, the war in the Ukraine right it's affected everybody's income so, and the ratchet can only move one way. So when you're affluent and you're in a, in a time of, you know, uh, where your economy is good, you, you've got a good job, you know, your level of spending, your level of, um, your standard of living increases. But then suddenly, if you were to lose your job, then, you know, your level, your standard of living has to decrease. But it's human nature to want to keep it at same. the level at the same level that you had before so then you feel this like well you know what i don't really want to ask for charity right right yeah i've got this you know i feel ashamed hmm. that i have to readjust my my circumstances now because maybe i can't get a job maybe because i don't know the bank's gonna you know um take my home because i can't manage the mortgage repayments yeah. so you know, it's when you think about all these arguments in the current financial crisis. I think, yeah, and it's not a light term nowadays. I think it's just a, you know, the, the crisis that we find ourselves not just here in the UK, but globally, right? You're in the you're in the Philippines. That you know, zakat is such 
you know, it's, it's, it is really truly the answer. And not only to help the individuals, uh, you gave the example of wars and famines, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, the zakat funds can also be used for national projects. Right. So for example, one of the categories that is mentioned is to help the, uh, the travelers. So mm-hmm. building of roads, building of you know uh, public hotels, etc. Infrastructure. Et cetera, the infrastructure, exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, the, again, the second Khalifa uh, of Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he said that zakat is the means of national prog- uh, progress. Mm. That it's not only to help an individual to stand on their own feet, but nations stand on their feet and became, become you know strong and independent <coughs> by the means of zakat as well. Wow. Mm. I mean, you've quite nicely elaborated on the different ways that it's helping society economically, financially. But we've, I mean, even ourselves, we've mentioned the word purifying throughout this whole show. And I think you've, you also spoke about the fact that zakah is supposed to purify someone's wealth. But what, what does that mean, though? Because, like, uh, purification in financial terms probably doesn't mean anything. Mm. This is probably. I mean, nowadays it means money laundering, right? (laughs) (laughs) So it must have some kind of spiritual context to it, I'm guessing. So, what exactly are we talking about? It's both. Like we mentioned earlier, that it's also purification of your wealth. Like I said, that even if you're earning uh, by completely lawful means, there is still a sense of impurity in the sense that you do not hold the means of production. They belong to God, Mm -hmm. right? The land that you're building, the mind that you own, it belongs to God. So even if you're you know, your business, your working is 100% legit. If you're giving your workers, you know, above the uh, nor- normal rate, there's still that aspect that you did not deserve. You knew it was basically a bunch of random uh, things coming in your favor that mm-hmm. you own this thing. You were bought, you were, you know, you were born in a specific family in a specific time, etc. Yeah. So in yeah. that terms as well, that when you pay zakat, that one aspect that you don't have control over uh, in terms of purification of your wealth, uh, you do that as well. That certain things are not under your control, you have been more fortunate than the others, so you purify your wealth in that sense. Mm-hmm. But like you said, the more, uh, just as importantly, uh, purifying of one's soul as well. Um, there's, a, there's a chapter in the Holy Quran which is called Al-Mu'minun, the believers. So in the very beginning, Quran mentions seven different uh, you know, categories of, or seven things that a believer does, and they can be also seen as stages of uh, a person improving in their faith. So the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad al-Islam, uh, one of them is Wahum zakati Fa'ilun, that they're active in the paying of the zakat. And he mentions that it is not easy to, you know, to, uh, to separate yourself from your wealth. And when a person does that for the sake of Allah, that in itself is a, uh, you know, purifies one's soul. And the scholars of Islam and the ulama and Sufiya have written very elaborately on this, that paying of zakat, you know, giving a, giving away your hard-earned money that becomes a source of purification of self. That you realize that there is something uh, which is more important than your personal good, and that is the good of mankind as a whole. Mm, mm, well said. Well, um, thank you for staying up because I know it's quite early in the Philippines, Imam Tala. It's been a pleasure speaking to you this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. Thank you very much for joining Absolutely. us. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Well, we're coming to the end of the show now. And uh, I think in conclusion, I mean, words better than I can say, uh, the fifth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masra Ahmad, may Allah strengthen his hand, said at one occasion, Islam also teaches us how to conduct our financial and economic affairs and outlines the responsibilities of a true Muslim in his financial dealings. Whilst Islamic teachings, which are given 
in the Holy Quran command Muslims to fulfill the rights owed to God. At the same time, they also instruct us to feel, fulfill the rights of God's creation. So, you know, in, in those words, I mean, it's, it's apparent as to, you know, the, the necessity and of paying your zakat and the reason why. And furthermore, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the promised Messiah, may Allah be pleased with him, has explained the concept of the Islamic obligation of zakat as such. And I think Imam Pala has already touched on this. No religion except Islam provides an injunction like that of zakat. No doubt something like zakat is also found in the Jewish faith, but not in so fine a detail as in Islam, where all the different heads of expenditure are also explained at length to conclude sorry, to include all possible means of national progress. Zakat entails a collective effort which is not found in the Jewish ordinance. So just from those words of uh, the promised Messiah, may Allah be pleased with him. Zakat is not just uh, oblig obligatory um, donation or whatever you may want to call it upon each individual, but taken as a whole, it is uh, something which can actually progress a nation. Anything to add to that? I think that's the words of a prophet and they're absolutely perfect in the mm. way that they've described what zakat is, its objectives are and what it hopes to achieve. And like we know at the moment we have not seen the system of zakat particularly being implemented here in the Western society. Mm -hmm. It's something that we probably hope and pray is only a matter of time and mm -hmm. it would really be something that would change the whole conversation I think that mm -hmm. we've been having where, where well we you just you just wouldn't have I think uh, something that Imam Talo uh, saying you have rich individuals right let's look at Elon Musk right rich individuals who at a drop of a hat could solve right could solve uh, poverty food insecurity in the world that's right it's around about 6.5 billion dollars right wow. So you can solve that. You can. It's not, but we, instead, we, we yeah. buy Twitter, or it's called <laughs> X now, right? For yeah. about forty-four billion. Yeah. So you know, it's having social responsibility, and Absolutely. with it's that, that mindset. Yeah, it's the mindset, and it's having not the so well. Yes, social responsibility, but actually thinking that you know what, we are only here but for the grace of God. Absolutely. But anyway, wow. with those words, uh, we conclude Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. Thank you to our technician in the back, Wahab, uh, our producers, Nadia Shamas, uh, Pravesh Huma, and Misper Tarek. Also to my co-host um, from previous shows, <laughs> Kumar Ahmed, Imam <laughs> Kumar Ahmed. Thank you very much. That was Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show.